Love your recruiters. Think of them as talent agents, not recruiters, because a great agent represents you for the lifetime of your career, which is how we look at the relationships that we have with our companies and our clients. And don't think of them as someone who's there to get you a job. If you don't feel this way about your agent, find someone who will really take ownership of your career because it's a beautiful, beautiful relationship between an agent and a candidate who can ride life and watch each other grow. It is a beautiful, beautiful rewarding thing. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Whitby, and I'm joined today by Jared Kosalia. Jared is the founder and CEO of True Staffing Partners, an award-winning staffing company in data privacy, e-discovery, and cybersecurity since 2010. Jared has successfully placed over 3,000 professionals in full-time and temporary positions with Fortune 1000 companies, the AM Law 200, as well as global consultancy service and software providers. He's recognized globally as the go-to person for staffing solutions or career advice in legal technology and data protection. He's also a, has a BFA in acting, directing, and producing. So welcome, Jared. Thanks for being here. Mark, thanks for having me. Thrilled to be here. Uh, love All your right. show. Oh, thank you so much. You referred to me by one of my clients, Amanda Brandenburg. So shout out to Amanda. She is awesome. Fantastic. <laughs> she is. You guys used to work together, I think. Uh, we didn't. I attempted oh. to hire her and get her to come okay. work for me, which I was unsuccessful in doing. But thank God, because I, when I spoke with her, I remember saying clearly, look, if you have the risk tolerance and interest in being an entrepreneur, it is the greatest professional decision that I've ever made. And so I would encourage you to do it. And she has, and I hear she's doing quite well. She is doing spectacular. And so I obviously got the wrong end of the stick there. What, how do you know Amanda? So we both kind of swim in similar circles in sure. technology. And uh, she, for a long time, was someone I had respected and admired as a business development and recruitment professional. And as our company's grown tremendously over the last five years, I'm always looking for people that I think will be good cultural fits for my organization, can step in and be leaders. I think in general, it's much harder to go out into the market and hire a leader than it is to groom them from within, particularly in what I would consider boutique uh, staffing agencies. And our company probably falls in, into that uh, category. Um, we're, we're not a $100 million company, right? Uh, and, uh, and Amanda's wonderful. I think she's great with people, great with business, and a great mentor to the people that work for her. Oh, wonderful. Well, that's cool that you have that mindset. And um, it's one that I embrace, which is, but many recruiters feel threatened or don't want to talk to sort of competitors or people in the same space as them. Uh, whereas I kind of take more of an abundance mindset view of, you know, maybe we can help each other or maybe there's, there's opportunities for us to, um, yeah, collaborate in some way. So that's cool that you've, uh, you've got that same viewpoint. What, look, I'm, I'm really interested to find out how you built your business from scratch to being one of the fastest growing companies on the Inc. 5000 list. But before we go into that, let's just take a quick detour because you started your career as a theater director, I think. And then, yes. so how, how did that trend, how did you go from working in theater to recruiting and staffing? Well, it's actually a really simple story. I graduated college and a few months later, 9-11 happened. 
And it was a very difficult time for theater makers and people in the entertainment industry. And much like today, although not nearly as catastrophic as it has been for the Broadway and theater community as COVID has. But during 9-11, people forget the theater shut down for months. People were afraid to go to the theaters. People didn't want to be in large groups where they could potentially be at risk for terrorist threats. And it took a real toll, and I needed a way to make some money. So I was living in New York City. I had uh, worked in a temp capacity for a staffing agency that did nurses when I was in college, just to pick up some bills. And it was mainly more administrative work, but I learned how to source, you know? Mm. So I had this sourcing skill, and I, I likened it to casting. Uh, huh. Because when you're a director, you're always casting shows. And so right. I do think there's quite a lot of similarities to being a theater director, where at the end of the day, your mission is to harmonize the human capital of all the different disciplines that go into making a work of art. And it's not that much different than building the entire human capital for an organization. Now, obviously, what I do is a bit more niche in the staffing game, but you know, we've had the great pleasure of building entire lit support departments or taking clients of ours that are three people operations and ballooning them up into 30 or taking a company that's a $10 million company and staffing 60 to 100 people there over three years and then watching them sell for 200 million. You know, those kinds of stories. The reason we can tell them, I think, is because of my experience in the theater and understanding that different people have different strengths and complementing and matchmaking those strengths just as you would cast a play uh, can absolutely be applied to building uh, human capital in an organization. Interesting perspective. Do you find that your sort of acting and performing experience helps you presenting or communicating with, with people? Yeah, of course. I mean, I often give a lot of my candidates that I represent the advice that rather than focus their efforts on professional development towards something that is industry specific or subject matter expertise, you know, the, the old Toastmaster advice, right? Go get good at speaking, get good right. at presenting ideas. Uh, I think clarity and articulation of thought are probably one of the most valuable skill sets that I bring to the table in terms of leadership. And I try to get the people who work with me to emulate that. They do a pretty good job. Um, but then also being in the theater, I would say, on a more esoteric level, really helped me have an appreciation not only for the human condition, uh, but how to access it, not only within myself, but in others. As an actor, which I was classically trained as, you have to access the human condition inside. As a director, you have to pull the human condition out of other people. And part of that is letting people make mistakes and giving them permission to make mistakes. Part of that is uh, helping people make lots of choices so that when they finally get to the best choice, they feel like they've explored enough that they know what the best choice is. Uh, and that comes from directing. I mean, these are, mm. these are you know, principles of how to coach actors. And we apply that pretty acutely to how we prep candidates for interviews with our clients at True Staffing Partners. You know, one of the things I think distinguishes us as an organization, and it's been a cornerstone of our success, is we prep every candidate before they go in front of every client every time, every round of interviews, because we're shaping clay here, right? Nobody has mastered the art of interviewing unless they're in the business of the art of interviewing like we are. So transferring that knowledge and helping pull out of them their best selves so that they can present their best selves and have some rehearsal, some dress mm -hmm. rehearsal prior to being on stage 
is I think critical to you know why we have such success. Great analogy. And could you, I wasn't expecting to talk about this today, but <laughs> can we just double click on this? Like what um, is included or why do you think your prep is particularly good compared to what the, the, the standard or norm would be? Yeah, well, if I take it at the 100,000 foot view based on the conversation we're having around applying the rules of being a theater director to the rules of being a talent agent, I think you're really listening to the way someone articulates what they want, what they've done, what they're looking for, and helping them reframe, reshape, or rethink it for the audience they're about to step in front of, right? Mm. When you're an actor, you step out on a stage, and on Mondays and Tuesdays and Friday nights, you have one kind of experience with your audience. But on the Wednesday matinee, you've got a very different audience in the house. And my job is to know the audience. Before I put a candidate in front of a client, know the audience and help shape that performance for that audience. It, it may mean a little pandering to the kids that are at the matinee or the senior citizens <laughs> that are at the matinee, um, just to use that metaphor. But knowing your audience and how to present yourself for that audience is critical in today's day and age. And I just don't think there's enough talent agents that, that do that work. It's the hard work. It's the art, I think, of what we do. Wow, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way. So um, how much of a difference does that make? Like, it's hard in a, say, half-hour prep call, pre-interview with the candidate to... I mean, you're not going to change someone's personality. You're not going to really help them acquire better communication skills in that time. So, you know, certainly helping them understand the audience they're going in front of and what's most important to that audience and what elements of their experience they should pull out or emphasize or whatever. But are there any other secrets that you, you guys use to try and really make sure? Because look, I think some people get the wrong understanding of prepping candidates and they think that we're spoon feeding people or trying to make them better than they are, but that's never going to be the case. It's always a case of helping someone to perform at their best, right? And make sure that, because interviews are tough, people get nervous and often they're not able to present themselves and their capabilities in the best possible way. So how do you specifically get candidates to be able to do that? Yeah, to your point, it is not just a downstream knowledge transfer from us to the candidate. That's not the value of the prep, although that does happen in the prep. Think of it this way. When you're an actor, you have ideas. But maybe you don't share those ideas or you don't try those ideas out on stage Mm -hmm. without permission So a good rehearsal process when you're a theater director is giving actors permission and creating a safe space for people to make mistakes, say the wrong thing, try things that don't work so that you can guide them to the ones that do. Mm. You're guiding people to their best choices. But if you don't give them permission to make choices or to ask questions or to try things out and go, you know, I, I understand the essence of what you're trying to say there. But the way you said it kind of triggers these other things in me that are negative. Why don't you try this word instead? Or why don't you try approaching it from this angle instead? I think you'll maintain the integrity of what you're trying to express 
without triggering things that might detract from the holisticness of, of your expression. And look, these are, you know, these are hard things to coach. And uh, candidates, there are some candidates that take direction really well, just like there are some actors that take direction really well. And then there are others that don't. And a good agent knows when to put their elbow behind their guidance and push an actor or push a candidate towards making the harder, more challenging or difficult choices that will ultimately render better results. Interesting. All right. That's cool. Jared, um, tell me about building your business because you started the company in 2010. And um, first of all, what inspired you to make that choice? And second of all, like what's, t tell me about that journey, 11 years, ups and downs, lots, you know, of highs and lows, I'm sure. Like, um, can you just give me a, a bit of a history there? Yeah. So I would say in general, the highs have been really high. The lows haven't been so low. And, and I say that because I, I want to encourage people to be entrepreneurs. I think it's, um, if you have the fortitude, uh, it's, it's the most rewarding experience for a variety of reasons, not just financially. But to answer your question, I had the great fortune of working within the industry for another company. And like many people who become entrepreneurs, um, I was making too much money for the owner and I got pushed out. Mm, really? Uh, crazy. Yeah. I mean, look, I had three candidates of mine this week who got laid off and their employer actually told them that you're like, you were just, you're making too much money. And, uh, you know, it, it's a terrible feeling, right. To, to think you've succeeded, uh, and beaten expectations and for, for someone to feel threatened. That's, you know, an equity mm. stakeholder in a small business. So, I, you know, I learned, that lesson, I think I take really good care of my people. Uh, mm -hmm. That doesn't mean I don't change their comp plans from time to time, but I think they all found, you know, we changed our comp plan at the beginning of this year. We got to the end of the first quarter. Everybody made more money than they've ever made in a quarter in their entire life. So right. sometimes you have to trust your leaders are looking out for your best interests, and my people do. And that, that's a really hard thing to establish, but a really valuable lesson I learned when I got pushed out by someone who was a sole majority equity stakeholder in the business, which I am in this business. So we don't have any private equity. We don't have any venture capital. I haven't taken anybody's money. I don't have any debt. Um, and these are things that I'm really proud of because it attracts talent to come to work for me. It retains talent. Um, and, you know, we take care of our people. I, I think that in starting my business, I had enough runway and enough existing relationships where people were going to come with me. And that's the honest truth. Right? I don't want to sugarcoat it. People knew me. I had an established reputation. I went and started my business. And the beauty of it was that people couldn't wait to give me their business. Um, how do you grow that though? Right? Mm. How do you take relationships and turn it into a business? And the way you do that is in a couple of ways. The first of which is I think as an entrepreneur, you have to decide that you are your brand and your personal brand has to be explosive. Hmm. You can't hide in the shadows if you're the CEO and founder of a boutique staffing agency. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to be on the front lines. When I first started the business, I did everything. I sourced, mm -hmm. I prepped, I recruited, I did the business development, I ran the business in QuickBooks, I was handwriting checks for my temps. <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't have weekends, I was doing books on the weekends, balancing you know, numbers. Uh, and then eventually I hired, you know, 
uh, Drew Brody, who's our CFO and COO, and a, a dear friend who also happens to be someone I knew from the musical theater world, one of the most brilliant composers and lyricists, wrote many oh, wow. plays with me before we did this, while we were doing this even, uh, but is also probably the most logical person I've ever met in my entire life. Uh, you know, used to run the LSAT training initiative for um, Princeton Review before he came to work at True. And, you know, the, the guy's a genius. And thank God, I have my weekends back now. Uh, and that was the first person that, you know, I hired, really, was what I would consider a partner. He is a partner. Interesting. Uh, because if you're going to run a business, you got to get your head out of the books as fast as possible. Once you get to a place where you can afford someone to run your books and run them really thoughtfully, you've, you've got to get out of the way because you need to be on the front lines with clients. Now, can I just press pause here for a second? Sure. The story because that's not usually the first hire that I, from what I've seen, where because you could have a freelance bookkeeper, you could have an a, accounting firm who you know is going to do the you know the books at the end of the quarter, end of the year, um, and so most small recruitment business owners, the logical thing would be, okay, I've I've got these relationships, I want I'm going to hire a sourcer, a recruiter who's going to help me with the candidate piece and then I can go and win more work. So how was that? Why did you make that your first hire? If you're not in the contract staffing business, mm -hmm. you're not in the staffing business, in my opinion. Okay. So running a staffing business that. is about running a contract staffing business. Perpetual revenue only comes yeah. with contract talent. And in my mind, I had always set out from day one, because this is also something I learned from my previous work experience prior to starting True Staffing Partners, is if you aren't in that business, then when times are tough, mm. times are really tough. And yes. let me tell you something, when we got through last year, it was because of our temps. Yes. My business survived 2020 because of our temps. There was no full-time permanent revenue for almost the entire Q2 and Q3 of last year. Not enough, certainly, to feed the staff that we retained. So right. I learned that lesson before I started this business. And I knew yeah. when I started this business that the goal would be to build a contract staffing model that would service mm -hmm. the community in a way that wasn't being serviced currently and needed to be serviced currently because the gig economy was expanding. This is like 2011, 12. And now 35% of Americans are working in the gig economy. And my industry, yeah. though quite niche, is not immune to that. Quite the opposite. 62% mm. of our placements in 2020 were contractors. Wow. So when the market goes bad, mm -hmm. employers turn to contract. It happens yeah. every time. I went through it in 2008 to 2010. Yeah. I went through it even before that in like dot com when I was working in healthcare. Yeah. I went through it now through the pandemic and those lessons allowed my organization to have the best first quarter in company history. And this week, actually, this last week in April is the biggest week we've ever had in company history. So wow. congratulations. It, thank you. It's been remarkable. And, and what's been remarkable mm -hmm. about it is surviving last year with my staff and imploring them to trust me that all the money you thought you were going to make this year, all the success we thought we'd have this year will come back twofold if we're resilient, mm. pun intended. And they all stuck with me. And here we are. Fantastic. Um, yeah, for sure. I think 
Every time I, we have a similar um, tenure in this business. I think Jared, I started my coaching business in 2001, the same, uh, well, two weeks before September 11th. And before that it was in the dot-com bubble. I had placed people, sales people with e-commerce businesses that then uh, didn't get their next round of funding and didn't pay us. And uh, then 2008, that was pretty rough. So, but the good thing is if you can survive through that adversity, it always comes roaring back even stronger than before. Uh, At least that's what's always happened in the past. And that seems to be what's happening again now. Um, But to, to go back to the temp contract conversation, um, what's the mix then of your, in terms of your business model, how much is temp and how much is permanent? It depends on the year. I mean, last okay. year is, is a very yeah. anomalous year, but on average it's, you know, 50, 50, 60, 40. Okay. It, it just depends. I mean, look, we're yeah. not, not doing full-time placement. We do a lot of, right. we do a lot of retained executive search. So, you know, right. C-level placement, CEOs, uh, chief privacy officers, chief information security officers, chief security yeah. officers. We do those all day long. None of those are contract positions. Those are all full-time positions. Most of them are retained mm-hmm. uh, and exclusive searches and they're big fees, right? Yes. Um, so look, you can't discredit that work because your clients are going to need it. The margin on that work is phenomenal uh, in terms of low overhead, right? I mean, it's why a lot of people get into staffing. You can run it from your desk, you make a big placement, ah, it's, you know, 20 to 50 grand and, you know, where's the real overhead? But if you want your business to survive the valleys, it is very difficult to do if you're not architectured to handle robust contract opportunities. And then when opportunity knocks, which it does with us all the time, and you get a huge contract opportunity where you're going to deploy 20 to 50 people with 50 to 75% margins for three to four years, and all of a sudden your business skyrockets and you start landing on Inc. 5,000 lists in the top 1,100, it's not because you're doing so much full-time placement. It's because right. you've developed the architecture for your institution mm-hmm. to scale when opportunity knocks. And it's not just having the resources to scale. It's having the infrastructure. And look, people ask me all the time, do you have competitors in your space? And I kind of say, eh, you know, yeah, yes and no. I really think my biggest competition are the internal human resource recruiters within my organizations. Unfortunately, there is still Mm -hmm. tension with a lot of big fortune companies and a lot of service providers where they try to save a buck and do it on their own, Um, (laughs) but they can't, right? They can't. Um, But uh, I, I think in general, you know, that's, that's my perspective. Okay, brilliant. And let, let me ask you something though, because some rec- recruiting firm owners that I um, know and, and and come across believe, right or wrongly, that from a positioning standpoint, it's hard to offer both executive search for the most senior roles and temp within the same brand because they feel like that um, they won't have the status, if you like, if they're, if they're running temps at the same time, what's, but you've obviously done it. So how have you handled that? Like if you start out providing temps, does the client perceive you as being the same partner who can deliver for their senior executive roles? I mean, for us, it it has never been a problem because I think 
the sophistication and level of maturity with which we handle all search mm-hmm. demonstrates that capability. And I think our clients pick up on that pretty instantaneously when they work with mm. me and my team. But having said mm. that, I think that maybe I benefit, my organization benefits from being in a pretty narrow silo that goes really right. deep. Right. So yes. I'm not staffing nurses. Right. You're like, I do healthcare, And like, oh, my God, like the ecosystem of healthcare is so enormous. I yes. can see why somebody who hires, you know, CEOs of hospitals isn't going to engage the same agency potentially that is finding their contract nurse RNs yes. all day long. I get that. Right. But in my industry, my goal is to be an expert in the vertical. Um, and, you know, when I'm out there speaking, on the news and on TV, I'm not just speaking about being an expert in the job market or in recruiting the way we are. I'm out there speaking about data privacy and protection and cybersecurity and e-discovery. And I understand it as a subject matter expert would. I want all my staff, which they do, to continue to emulate that as well. And so being that expert, and not just being it, but marketing that expertise, being, as I said earlier in our conversation, the face of the brand, accessible not only through phone calls and emails, but in mass to large groups of people in media outlets, positioning yourself as a subject matter expert has absolutely differentiated me from all the would-be competitors who are small ones and twosies, right? And that was the point I was going to make before I lost my train of thought. The point I was going to make before is those competitors always say, how does Jared do it? He's built a machine, right? It's a business. It's not a lifestyle job. I, I, I mean, it's not. We are a big business. We've got close to thirty internal employees, and you know, mm-hmm. almost a hundred contractors. Like this is this is not a um, business that could operate without that kind of investment in infrastructure, technology, and talent. Before I go to my next question, I'd like to share one of the keys to my success in recruitment and in business. You may have noticed that a lot of the people I interview on this show have a coach. That's not a coincidence. Most high achievers have a coach, including me. I've worked with various coaches over the last 20 years, and it's been a huge factor in my own personal and business growth. Here's why. Sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees, and it really helps to take a step back and look at how you can improve the business and get a fresh outside perspective from someone who's bringing new ideas and insights to the table. Plus, as a business owner, who is holding you accountable and helping you stay on track? So I want to encourage you, if you're not already working with a coach, get one. It doesn't have to be me. There are plenty of amazing coaches out there. Just find someone who you believe will add measurable value to your business and can help you get to the next level. If you do want to explore a coaching relationship with me, then you're welcome to apply for a free 30-minute strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. This is not a sales call. My number one objective is to help you to get clear on your goals, identify the roadblocks that are holding you back, and create a strategic plan to increase your billings and grow your business. I promise you'll leave our session feeling focused, re-energized, and excited to take your business to the next level. You can apply at www.recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. So I'd love to talk about the positioning of yourself as a subject matter expert and the PR, you know, that you've been able to generate behind that. But first, going back to your story, building the business. So you hired, your first hire was a friend who became the sort of COO and CFO type person. Where did things progress from there? 
And then you start hiring recruiters. Okay. And how you diversify your organization depends on who you have and what you need in terms of delivering for your clients. Um, we've evolved a lot, but we run our organization kind of like a consulting firm, meaning we have tiers. And when people hit new tiers, they gain more responsibility, different compensation packages, uh, more potential resources underneath them. So a, a vice president here is really someone who has demonstrated the ability to manage accounts, handle clients, manage and have oversight over people, has a budget, has P&L, you, you know, there's, there's growth there. But the people mm -hmm. who are entry-level talent scouts, which is the point of entry within our recruitment and account management division, the people that come in there have the opportunity to become vice presidents. And we paint yes. that picture for them when they come on board as talent scouts, and we have multiple vice presidents that we can point to in the organization who started as talent scouts. So Brilliant. That's an yeah. awesome story to be able to show some of the career, the, the career path and the potential. Yeah, It's essential. And, and, and it's essential not only for career pathing, but it's also essential for getting through hard times, right? Back mm -hmm. to the earlier conversation, you've got to show people where they're going to end up on the other side of the tunnel. You've got to paint a picture for them of what the light looks like and set some expectations of when we're going to get there and how we're going to get there. Because if people know, if they, if they can imagine, not even see, but imagine the light at the end yes. of the tunnel, then they can begin to formulate in their mind how they're going to get there, right? Uh, in addition to theater, I'm a huge boxing fan. And the late okay. Arturo Gatti, um, who I was a huge fan of, great Italian boxer, um, died tragically. But he said this thing before he fought Floyd Mayweather. And he, he did not do well. He, he got the crap kicked out of him during that fight. But he said this thing in preparation for the fight that I'll never forget. And I take it with me everywhere I go. The one most important thing he does in preparation for a fight is he imagines what every round is going to look like. He imagines what every step in the process, getting to the ring and fighting in the ring will be like. And then he goes and he executes on that vision. And that is a, some, something I try to live by when I coach my staff through hard times, when I hire someone new, when I promote someone and then show them what the next end of the tunnel looks like, you have to paint a picture for them because you can't assume that everyone has the same ability to imagine the future that you do. That's why you're the leader because you have the ability to be visionary. And if you bring people under the umbrella of the vision, the way a theater director would or a CEO, you will find that you will get better performances and greater retention out of your staff. I love it. Um, great, great way of describing that. But Jared, you did, you make it sound a little easy, like, well, then you just hire recruiters and <laughs> you grow a, you know, and you win these contracts and, you know, but there are challenges, right? Like most uh, owners I speak to say that ironically, the biggest challenge or constraint to growth is that it's their own internal recruitment is hard, finding the right person, because this job isn't easy and it's not for everybody. And um, you want someone who has certain, you know, characteristics, which are hard to define, hard to measure. And um, so what do you think has been the secret to your growth from, you know, you your, yourself going out with a few relationships and people who came with you and then to building a, a really successful business with 30 people? Well, look, shout out to the recruiters who recruit recruiters. I mean, I engage an expert. 
just like okay. I expect my clients to do of me. My staff isn't an expert at recruiting other recruiters. We're not sitting on reservoirs of talent in that space. And we're not out there spending all day, every day talking to those people. So I'm going to go pay someone who is, I mean, put your money where your mouth is. If you're in the recruitment business, quite frankly, and I don't think enough people do. So I would say a third of our staff, we've gotten through an agency. The other side of that is you have to find great people to invest in at a young point in their career, not age, but at a young point in their career in this space Right. I just hired someone, former cop, uh, has maybe six months of experience working at some big agency. They just came and joined our agency because I was able to paint a path for a future that is so much brighter and more exciting than where they were. And you have to be good at painting that path in order to attract talent. But you also have to look for who are the people that are going to be my big earners five years from now. Mm. I think a lot of people are focused on hiring people that deliver results now. And all my clients are, right? We, we make a lot of money placing salespeople in our industry who are impact players that are very expensive, that come with really big fees. I would say most of the people that I hire, I don't pay really big fees on. I'm not out there hiring people at a VP and director level. I'm yes. making investments in the right people at a young age and giving the age, age in their career and giving them something that they cannot and will not get anywhere else. And you have to look for that in people. Can I give this person something professionally that they're probably going to have a hard time convincing someone else to give them? And, and that's attractive to me because that mm. leads to long-term retention. Uh, Annette Habib, who's my senior vice president, she's the highest ranking member in the organization. She's been with me for eight years. She started as an operations scheduler, you know, eight and a half years ago. And now she pretty much runs the company. Um, I mean, is the perfect wow. example of just seeing somebody who had never recruited before, mm-hmm. had, had never, you know, managed accounts. I mean, here she manages this, like, you know, Fortune Top 10 accounts now. Um, but man, there was just something about her that made me go, if I give her this opportunity to shine, if I give her an opportunity to, to prove herself, she will do so much better than she, even she can imagine. And, she, and I think she has. I mean, maybe she imagined she'd do great too, but <laughs> I won't take that credit away from her. But, I, you know, I think she's done amazing things here. And that's not because she came with the skill set. It's because she came with the right attitude and the right aptitude. So how do you spot that in people when they don't? So you're saying like maybe a third of your people came they had experience. They were recruited by a, a recruitment agency that recruits recruiters. Um, so then you've got more to go on, right? Because you can see how well they did in the past, what they're good at, where they still need development, and you know, are they a good culture fit for us, and so on. But then someone who's got no industry experience or very little, what are you looking for, and how do you know that you've found what you're looking for? You know, there's a saying in mm. improv, in theater, that when you're doing improvisation, mm-hmm. you have to say yes to everything, right? Okay. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but like, you know, you get two actors on stage, they're doing an improv, and one of them, you know, turns the broom into a sword, and all of a sudden, they're <laughs> supposed to be in swords, right? Well, the other actor they're acting with has to say yes to that idea. Oh, it's a right. sword. They have to believe it's a sword, right? Yes. So that's what I look for. I look for someone that's going to say yes. That's just going to say yes. It's a, it's a yes person. I need you to do this. Yes. I want you to try to figure this out. 
Yes. Try this for me. Okay. Because a great actor says yes to every, a great director and a great actor mm-hmm. says yes to every creative, creative idea until they mm-hmm. find the best one. And if you find someone that's willing to say yes, then you'll keep trying stuff with each other until it works. If you find someone who says no, you're going to constantly be trying to convince them to follow you. Ha. Huh. I've never heard that answer before, Jared. That is an original. <laughs> um, so I get it intellectually, but what? how in an interview situation are you actually able to assess that? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I do a lot of, tell me about times you've been asked to do something that you weren't comfortable doing. Mm. And what did you do to make yourself comfortable doing it? Mm-hmm. Personally or professionally? Right. I like people who are comfortable being uncomfortable. Sure. And I like people who can talk about uncomfortable things. I'm an edgy guy. When you see me out there <laughs> t- talking about things, I'm not just talking about, oh, you know, we all need to be secure so people don't steal our bank records. I'm talking about how civil rights is immediately tied to facial recognition technology and adversely affects people of dark skin color. Is that a right. you know, fun, nice topic? No, it's challenging and, and right and righteous. And, you know, I want to talk about those things. So I'm comfortable talking about uncomfortable topics because they're important to the people that are in my business and they're important to my business and my moral center. And I want people that can talk about uncomfortable things. I want people that can talk about things that didn't go right and why they didn't go right and can unpack it. Um, But then I also try to avoid hypotheticals. So Mm. to answer your question, you know, what not to do, I try to avoid putting anyone on an interview scenario where I'm like, what would you do in this scenario? I (laughs) hate that. I I think everybody, all interviewers should avoid asking people to hypothesize Mm -hmm. on interviews. So I look for ways for them to talk about historical things that actually happened to them where Mm -hmm. they can describe to me doing something they didn't want to do. Right. Fantastic. That's that's excellent. So um, you've got this really great way of knowing with some, I mean, there's always uncertainty when you're hiring people, right? There's risk and uh, you're willing to take those calculated risks, which is why you've, you've grown. What else do you feel has contributed to this trajectory uh, that you guys have been on with true staffing partners? Uh, You know, look, it's, it's not like everyone I hire works out. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this we've learned through failing on our own mm-hmm. and, and, and not asking the right questions on interviews. Mm-hmm. I think what has attributed to our success exponentially at the end of the day, and this I think is a milestone for all recruiters is, man, we just care. Mm-hmm. I mean, we really, it's sincere. We care about our clients and we care about the people that we represent. We care about their jobs. We take it seriously. And, you know, one of the ways we show that is <laughs> we, we tell people, uh, I'm, I'm not going to ever pressure you to hire someone. I'm never going to pressure you to take a job, but I'm definitely going to pressure you to interview someone. And I'm definitely going to pressure you to interview with a company you may not want to. That's my job. My job hmm. is to get you out of your comfort zone and for you to stop being the expert about your own career because most people are not. Most people do not know what's best for them generally speaking, and need some wisdom and guidance. And most people generally have misconceptions about companies that they've heard from friends or they read on Glassdoor and untangling a lot of that and giving them 
different perspective is huge. I love it. And it's interesting you say that you're, you tell people that in advance, I think you can, people will go along with you a lot if you tell them upfront what you're doing and why you're doing it, rather than you're doing things to people later, which they might feel is manipulative or they might push back against. But it's almost like you're getting their permission at the outset, whether it's a client or the candidate to work in a certain way. And they can, and they also understand this because you do care and you want the best outcome for them. And so then they're willing to maybe go on that interview that another agent might not have been able to send them on. Um, influence is the word we use here. Influence. Exactly. Yeah. It's a um, huge skill and, and it's a tough one to teach and mentor others. Um, but man, it is the most critical aspect of being a good talent agent. I mean, I, you know, I watched Entourage. I like Ari Gold sometimes. You know, influence. You have to influence the market. You have to influence yeah. the clients. You have to influence the candidates. And you have to do it all with a level of transparency and sincerity so that they trust you. I mean, the first five letters of my company are not accidental. Huh. T-U-R, t- uh, T-R-U, sorry. Got it. Trust. T-R-U-S-T. Hmm. That's, that's my product, man. My product yeah. isn't the people. The product is the trust. Huh. Fantastic. Um, you talked about mentoring and mentoring your team. What, how do you go about that in your, in your business? Well, first, you have to make yourself available all the time. Okay. Your team needs you. You're never too busy. And generally, I'm always available for all of my staff if they need me. And, and not just if they need me, but if one of their candidates or clients needs me, making yourself available. I remember uh, one of my clients, um, Ed Strauss, uh, Strauss Freeberg, which is now Aon. Uh, okay. I met him maybe like 15 years ago. And he said to me the most amazing thing um, right before he sold his company to Aon. And I'll never forget it. He said to me, you know, my job is to have nothing to do all day so that I can be available immediately for whoever might need me the most. And I just never forgot that, man. So as a CEO, you know, and we're about to hit peaks that we've never hit before, that's kind of what I'm trying to do is just be able to delegate, give people opportunity to succeed and fail, give them responsibility that they may not think they're ready for, but they are, push them and challenge them always. That never stops right? My team is probably going to laugh. You know, they all have the best quarter of their careers. And, you know, at the quarter end review, I wanted more, (laughs) you know, not because, uh, you know, it wasn't enough, but because I want them to always reach new potentials. And Mm -hmm. so I'm always pushing them to whatever the next challenge is. That's, you know, the line always has to move a little further because I don't ever really expect them to hit the line. And this quarter, they all exceeded the line, maybe for the first time ever. So it was, it was this jarring experience of, yeah, the line's going to move even further now because we got to push ourselves as a company. Raise the bar for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So being available Um, is is huge. hmm. So what I'm really fascinated by is the biggest obstacle or constraint that I can see that prevents like you you're the majority of staffing firms never get bigger than you know one two three five ten people right and they that that's the sort of um plateau or 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 limit um 
And one of the reasons is that the owner is wants to be involved in everything, own all the relationships, be on, you know, on top of every single thing that's going on. How do you get over that and trust? I mean, it comes back to this thing that you, you built your company around trust, but how do you make sure that you're able to empower the people that you've hired to perform to their best ability while you're off going and creating the next part of the business? I'm lucky because I learned this in the theater business. Okay. When you're a director, when I was a director, I wouldn't let go. I'd go see the show through opening. I'd watch it every night. I'd want to give notes to the actors. I just want to keep making it better and keep making it better and keep making it better. And people hated me. And (laughs) it was really hard socially to be a director at NYU in my teens because people hated me because I was that obsessive director. And, you know, when you're a kid, you grow up thinking that's how directors are, right? Scorsese and you know, Coppola, like they're crazy, right? Their attention (laughs) to detail is crazy, right? That's what makes them great. It's not what makes them great. What makes them great is they surround themselves by people they trust and they get everything off of their plate. And Mm. uh, I learned that from my experience in the theater business. And I learned it when I hit a certain level where Mm -hmm. union laws prevent you as a director from (laughs) giving notes and participating. And, you know, when a Broadway show opens, that's it, man. You can't make changes. It locks. And so as I got further in my career in that space, I started learning those lessons and accepting it and also realizing that being a great leader means to some extent being liked. I am not Machiavellian. I don't want people to fear me. I want my people to like and respect me and feel like family. I want that kind of culture. And to do that, you cannot be in charge of everything. And, you know, look, I've spent a lot of time on this interview talking about giving people permission Man, as a CEO founder, give yourself permission to get things off of your plate. You have Mm. to. At the end of the day, as your business scales, your clients will respect and understand it because they've had to make the exact same choices. Good point. Good point. So you made a point earlier about giving people permission to make mistakes even. And um, I think this is always what, what is causing that reluctance to let go. And and obviously you care about the business being successful and about the clients and the candidates and the work. And so then it's hard to let people make mistakes, especially if they're going to cost you money or, you know, possibly upset a, a client relationship or, or whatever. So how have you addressed that? <laughs> well... We need to we need to optimize performance, right? We right. need people to do the job at a high level, um, and people are going to make mistakes. So what what does that look like? I actually don't think it's hard to let people make mistakes. I think it's okay. really easy to let people make mistakes. It's really hard not to be an asshole when they do, and that's the ah. difference. Mm-hmm. People are going to make mistakes every day. You're not going to know about most of them, mm-hmm. right? especially if you're running a company with 30 people. Yeah. That's not what's important. What's important is how you react to the mistake. And if you're not Mm -hmm. ready to react the right way to a mistake, Mm -hmm. then you're not ready to let people make mistakes. So I'd look at it that way. Mm. What's the right way to react? Well, the first is to say it's okay. 
Hmm. I mean, you know, I've got a three and a one year old and you know, they break a glass. I don't yell at them. And right. the first thing you say is it's okay. It's okay. I know you're scared. Right. I, Cause that's exactly what your recruiter or your business development agent, they're scared. Yes. They made a mistake and they are scared of what the consequences will be. So immediately yes. alleviate that fear and make them, hmm. you know, know that, I mean, I have one recruiter who uh, actually got referred to me by Amanda. She's incredible. <laughs> Her name is Jess Barr. And, you know, just, you know, being okay with, you know, it's okay to make mistakes. Like, just that you're not going to get fired. <laughs> like, there is no way that this is going to lead to you getting fired. But, you know, you have people that come from environments where maybe a mistake like that would have gotten them fired. And you don't know necessarily the you know, psychological impact that a previous employer has made on your new employee to that depth until your new employee makes a mistake. And right. so how you react to that mistake is actually most critical and, and likely mm -hmm. going to determine the pathway of your relationship with that employee. Right. No, absolutely. I, I used to work with a recruitment business where their policy was the manager would always close the offer. And so the recruiter had like done all the groundwork and gotten to this point. And then the manager would take over and, and, you know, close it. And I said, why are you doing it that way? And he said, well, you know, it's too important. We can't afford for people to, to screw it up and maybe lose the deal. And that's going to cost us money. And I was like, okay, how is that person going to get good at closing their own offers? If you never give them the opportunity to do yeah. that. Forget about that for a second and, mm. and say, my staff is more important to me than any one deal. Always. Right. There's no one deal that we will do that I would sacrifice one of my employees for ever. Right. And if right. they don't know that, they will now. And I think they do, though. And yeah. I think that that's probably the most damaging part of that equation for that story is now you've got an employee who um, can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Because every time they get to the edge, you shut the tunnel. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's it's it, well. It shows a lack of trust, which is correct. You know, fundamental to what you're. And, the, the, all about. and the deal is more important than the employee, which it right. shouldn't be. It shouldn't yes. be ever. Hmm. Interesting. I we probably don't have time to go deep on this, but how have you generated so much? publicity and and gotten these opportunities to be interviewed or or you know uh be on uh appear on news items and so on <laughs> you're gonna laugh i have an agent awesome all right Look, man i'm an agent i wouldn't yes. go buy a house without a real estate broker why are people hiring right. talent without an agent like i you know the argument i hate making all the time is why would we need to hire an agent we'll just go to linkedin and find them ourselves oh my god right. <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to unpack that right now okay right uh, at all let's definitely not unpack that right now what's cool is you understand the value of hiring experts to do certain things could you do it yourself and kind of get the job done probably but then wouldn't that time be better spent just growing your business and doing the things where you are, you have superpowers and you know how to do those things already. And this is, it's surprising to me how few recruitment business owners think like this, but the irony is they're asking their clients to make that 
mental leap of saying, do you know what? I'm not an expert in talent acquisition. I'm an expert in e-discovery. Why am I messing around trying to do a half-assed job of something that Jared and his team can do, you know, a brilliant job at? Uh, I might save a few bucks, but it's actually going to cost me more in the long run. So we recruiters are expecting our client to think that way. And yet there's a sort of attitude of, oh, I don't want to spend money on a PR it's just insane to me. Like, I, yeah. you know, when we first started the business, I hired a boutique marketing company that was a PR marketing company. We yeah. kind of not outgrew them, mm-hmm. but got to a place where we needed to internalize that component and were big enough that mm-hmm. we could and it made sense to. So we mm-hmm. did. And then we began to outsource literally like a talent agent for broadcast journalism because it's essentially what these appearances are, right? I'm appearing yeah. as an expert on your CNBCs or your ABC news radios or whatever local news stations, which we do all the time, uh, New York one and, and talking about whatever I'm an expert in. So yeah, me trying to internally as an organization develop those relationships with all these broadcast news networks and hope to find the ones that are going to like like me and like what I have to say and keep using it. I mean, what a total waste of time, effort, and energy. Mm. Why don't I just go woo uh, uh, the right talent agent to represent me? And, and we found a great one, you know. Brilliant. Jared, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Is there anything that you had hoped to talk about that we haven't uh, touched on or... Oh, I would just say, man, love your recruiters. Think of them as talent agents, not recruiters, because a great agent represents you for the lifetime of your career, which is how we look at the relationships that we have with our companies and our clients. Be good to your agent, man. You know, they, they are always looking out for you. And, and don't think of them as someone who's there to get you a job. Think of them, find someone. If you don't feel this way about your agent, find someone who will really take ownership of your career. Um, mm. Because it's a beautiful, beautiful relationship between an agent and a candidate who can ride life and watch each other grow. It is a beautiful, beautiful, rewarding thing. Well said. Awesome. So listen, on that note, um, thank you so much for being on the show, Jared. Listen, how can people reach out to you? Obviously, you're on LinkedIn, Jared Michael, Michael Coselia. Uh, um We've got the website, True Staffing Partners, which we'll link to in the show notes. But is there anything else, any other places they should uh, find you? No, that's the best place. Follow our company homepage on LinkedIn, trustaffingpartners.com, or you can visit us on the web, trustaffingpartners.com. You know, we're most accessible through the obvious means uh, and the social media channel that we use the most is LinkedIn. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. Uh, Mark, thanks again. Take care. Great being here. Thank you so much for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.